And it's a very good run for Hurley. Hurley in lane six. Can Donuts catch him? Challenging the world record, no less, too. And he's got it. Robert Hurley, 23-2-4. Another world record has fallen in Sydney. Hello and welcome to episode two of Swimming with Bobby. We have a very special guest during this coronavirus lockdown period here, and it's none other than Thomas Fraser Holmes. Tommy, how are you? Good, Bobby. Thanks for having me, mate. Good to reconnect. Yeah, it's a good, uh, well, there's bad things going on right now, but it is a good time to spend some time connecting with some old teammates and training buddies like we were. And I guess right now we're at the end of April in 2020, Olympics have been postponed and we're exactly um, seven weeks from New South Wales Open seven weeks ago, which was probably the last big meet for a lot of um, Olympic level swimmers. And we're also actually six weeks out from when the Australian Olympic trials were supposed to be. So we're right in the middle of that period. Yeah, it's, it feels kind of weird. Seven weeks ago, it was New South Wales State. It didn't really set the world on fire at that meet. Um, but yeah, it's, it's pretty weird. Like six weeks out from the trials and you've, you know, you still are, well, I still feel pretty fit. And, you know, you were getting to that, that point of the season where you were, coming into your race prep, your race, you know, preparation of your phase of championship season, then all of a sudden it was fine one morning, you know, in the morning session and then came in the afternoon and it was just, all right, guys, that's it. <laughs> we don't know when we're going to be back. Don't know what's happening. Don't know if Olympic is going to be on, but um, we can't train or do anything anymore or at the moment. So, yeah, really weird, but um, it's been, a, I guess, a good opportunity to do others, you know, do other things as well if you if you have study or if you want to do some research or if you just got other things you need to catch up on it's it's been a good time for that so depends which way you look at it yeah we'll just relive that that new south wales state open period because we'll obviously both there and and on the friday we get in and there's still a lot of interstate um competitors there i know dean boxall and St peters didn't come down so so mitch larkin and ariane titmus weren't there yeah. And then um, I think it was on that Friday afternoon that they announced that Australian age and, and club nationals were cancelled and the writing was on the wall and it was a bit of an eerie feeling there, wasn't it? Yeah, it was sort of like we'd come into the pool, like on I know on the Friday morning for the heats and I know having spoken to a few other people, I was under the impression that, yeah, we're going to be doing heats and then finals aren't going to be on for sure. Like, I think it was that point, it was just like no gatherings of over 500 people or something like that. And I think the, the state championships might have just been under or maybe around that number. There weren't in the afternoon, people in the stands. Yeah, <laughs> maybe there's 500 people on pulled it. And then we came in the afternoon for the finals and I was like, oh, I'm sure they're going to call this off tomorrow and Saturday and Sunday because there's obviously going to be a lot of people here in the morning for the heats. And it just kept going. And I remember speaking to a few people. I know uh, the Nutter Wadding crew, they went home early on the Friday after heats, maybe. And they they just got out of there. They didn't want to be, um, I think, locked down in Sydney. They wanted to, if it was to go into lockdown, they, they sort of wanted to be at home. So, yeah, it was kind of like a really weird, like, sort of everyone looking around going, what are we doing? Are we staying? Are we racing? Are we swimming? Like, what's happening here? And um, lo and behold, a week later, everything was just, you know, shut down and, you know, whole seasonal plans change. Yeah, it all happened pretty quick after that. I know 
on my side personally, I had William Yang and he had his main event, the 100 backstroke on the Sunday and he was yeah. all positive and in a good mood, pumped up for that. But in, I was there Friday afternoon, Saturday morning thinking, oh, we won't get to Sunday. It'll be cancelled. Mm. We won't get to Saturday yeah. night. It'll be cancelled. But, but it wasn't. And, and um, you know, that's... What did he swim in the 100 back there? Uh, 54.3. Solid. Yeah. Because he was tracking along nicely, wasn't he? Yeah. Oh, he yeah, still he will be, good. but when we get everything back underway. But yeah, he was progressing nicely. Yeah, he was going good. He was on, on track to, um, to get things done. But now we've got another 12 months to go until, until, well, 13 months until the Olympic trials. Now, I know back a couple of weeks ago, you, you scratched out of half of that meter in Sydney with, uh, with a shoulder niggle. Yeah, also I've had, um, oh, part, over the last 18 months, I've had um, what they call like tendinopathy in, in my left shoulder. So it's just basically um, where my, uh, basically where my supraspinatus is, that's, I just had tendons in there that were very, very grumpy and, and um, it's just been like a juggling act the last 18 months between not overtraining and then trying to strengthen it and then um just trying to balance the right workload but yeah just a bit of wear and tear over the years I guess I've done a lot of kilometers you know I I I think I worked it out maybe a month or so ago that I've swam around the world in throughout my entire professional career easily yeah that was just easily you've done that 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 was just from when I started in 2010 till now not all the years before that so that was, I think that was basically, it was like average of 6K session or something like that for, for nine sessions a week. I always had this hypothetical question in my head, like out of everybody in Australia right now, that's out of everybody in Australia, who swam the most kilometers in their life? If there was like a speedometer on our shoulders, who's done the most, or even out of current swimmers, I would have to say you'd be right up there just because you're yeah. 27, 28, but over time, yeah. I have to think a, a Hacky or a Perkins or somebody. Yeah, like I mean, I was doing seven, eight K sessions when I was fourteen and fifteen with Eric Arnold back at Hunter. And that that were just ruthless. They were just old school, like twenty two hundreds on two twenty, best average type stuff. You know, <laughs> like forty one hundreds on one ten, best average. Like it was just brutal. Like two, three K fly sets, all that type of stuff. It was just monotonous. Oh, oh it's just brutal, but worked out all right yeah well who in this period and have a few chats with with other people as well obviously an additional 12 months to the olympics who who could this be good for or who could this be bad for yourself you've got um uh time to heal that shoulder and get a little bit of extra training under the belt and reset yeah. into your third olympics as, a, as an older athlete but who else around the world can you think this could be good or bad for from, from the top of my head i, I mean Watched a guy like Kyle Chalmers at, at Sydney just absolutely rip out a hundred mm. fly PV with a full beard mm. and take care of business mm. in the freestyle races. You, you look at um, Diaceto just setting world mm. record, double world champion, home Olympics coming up, and the, the the rug just gets pulled out from under his feet. And and now he's had his second baby, so some of those mm. guys must be must be feeling it that like man they were they were ready to have the best year of their life this year. Yeah, it depends. Again, it depends which way you look at it. I know for me, it's been a great opportunity to get my shoulder right and to do a bit of strength work, strength work here at home with the weights that I do have. But 
it's a really interesting like conversation to have because then on the one side you've got the guys that were you know primed and ready and especially with those sprint guys that you know that have not a short window but they normally have a there's more you know less margin for error in those events so i feel sorry for the guys that were in form in those events like not just here in australia but around the world and then on the other hand you got people like is it Matetti from france who had a shoulder problem yeah, Metella had a shoulder. Yeah, Metella, sorry. Yeah, he just had a shoulder surgery. So for him, he'd be licking his lips going, sweet, you know, I was a contender before the shoulder and 12 months of, re- you know, whatever the rehab might be, another 12 to 15 months under my belt would be absolutely perfect. And you got people like that. And I guess for your older athletes, it's kind of the ones that were hanging on, not hanging on, but wanting to go to the last Olympics and making that last six-month push to the Olympics if it gets pushed back another 12 months, imagine those 17, 18, 19 year old kids that are just chomping at the bit like we were when we were younger, just to be like, I want to prove myself at every single meet and I you know, want to be the best and that's the mindset that you're in. Imagine those guys with another 12 months under their belt, how scary they're going to be, especially like here in Australia, you've got the likes of, you know, Tommy Neal, Elijah Winnington, you got all those guys that are just, you know, they get another 12 months. Lani Pallister, they just got another 12 months under their belt just going, you know, hammer and tong every day. So, well, that's which way you look at it. That's a good point. But, but also, if you're 17, 18, 19 and you're taking six, six months out of the pool, for example, you know, like how important was six months of training for you when you're 18? Like, is there, is there any negative effects for some of these teenagers coming through that they're not just pumping out some, some hard aerobic threshold work right now? Yeah, I mean, and it comes back to what event you swim, doesn't it? You know, like, um, I don't think it's that big of a deal. I don't think, you know, people are still keeping fit. They're still ticking over. They're still doing as much, you know, as much as they possibly can. So I don't think it's going to take too much of a toll. I just think it's going to, I had this, this when I was out of the water for 12 months. You know, you think, oh, I've had a week or two out of the water you know, how am I ever going to get back? But it only takes a couple of weeks to get the feel back and you'll be surprised how quickly you actually pick things up again and can get moving again, especially when you're motivated. Um, so, yeah, I think those young guys, they've just, it's like everyone just got to have a good plan in place to to um, to come back. And, and the biggest thing as well is, not going from doing nothing and then all of a sudden going back and doing 60, 70 K weeks because then you're at more risk of injuring yourself than what you were sort of doing nothing or you're at more um, detriment when you were doing nothing. If you come back and do 60, 70 K straight away. So I think there's that fine line between doing the right amount and doing too much and doing too less. So, um, but there's no, it's, there's no formula right now because we've never done this before and, and the proof won't be in the pudding until until the Olympics next year. And even some people might come back this year and they're on fire, but you don't want to be peaking in December. You want to be peaking in June, July next year. So yeah, so individual and and so specific yeah. to ages and events and your your physiological makeup. It's a it's a fun little game right now. Yeah, I think you just at the moment you just got to be ticking over, not getting too out of shape. And then making sure you just take a good break too, because when when once you come back, everyone's going to be motivated. Everyone's going to be super, just like chomping at the bit. And you don't want to sort of spend all your, you know, eat, 
spend all your, you know, your money come August, September, you know, like you don't want to be so motivated in the first couple of months and you're just fizzling to the next year. You want to sort of just keep that nice building momentum going towards next year, hopefully in July. So yeah, it, it's, it's a, it, it comes down to almost managing um, personalities and managing people now rather than um, the training aspect. Yeah, well, let's let's move in. What what is your daily training routine right now? What what are you doing personally and and with your fiance Jess as well as also training for the Olympics for the Swedish team? What what are you guys doing day to day? So we, I guess this was some, something that I learned when I had my twelve months off. I forced myself to get into a routine, so I feel like I I could get into a routine a little bit easier probably than most people. But um, it starts off we get up every morning at six. And then we either go for a walk, run, or swim. Um, and then come home, have some brekkie, do some stuff. If Jessica got to do study, if I'm um, studying up some coaching stuff that I want to get into. Um, and then probably early in the afternoon, we go and do some, some more exercise, whether that be gym or go for another walk or run or something like that. And that's pretty much our daily routine. You know, it's, um, it's not about doing everything in one day. I think you just plan it across the week. You know, it's don't have to do a lot each day. It's just, you know, like I said, getting in a routine and, and just sticking to that. Cool. That's that's uh, good advice for everybody out there. I'm, I'm the same. Get up, get out of the house and do something straight away. You, you feel like you've accomplished something and then you can move on to yep. the next task later yep. on. Let's go back to your early parts of career. We'll, throughout this podcast, probably just step through each, each year or each sort of period. But tell us a little bit about... Um, how you got into swimming and, and growing up in Newcastle, training at the at the Hunter Club and, and what your sort of training schedule looked like as you as you're progressing through school? Yeah, so obviously I grew up in Newcastle. I came from um, both my mum and my mum and my dad were very keen swimmers. They were up um, every morning at the crack of dawn to get down to I actually started a pool at Charlestown in, in Newcastle. Um, so that was basically where I spent my learned to swim days all the way up to about 12 or 13. Got into swimming because my older sister was a swimmer and she was doing swimming lessons. So that was the natural progression that I followed my sister, as I'm sure a lot of um, siblings do. But um, yeah, just got into the swimming and just really enjoyed being around my friends and enjoyed being around the environment. And then as I got a little bit older, as I, as I progressed through that 11, 12, 13, um, years of age mark I sort of saw my times kept coming a little bit coming down that that gradual sort of PB effect when you're at that age um, but I wasn't super keen on it I wasn't you know I need to do my eight sessions a week or nine sessions a week at this much this much I sort of fell into the environment I was lucky that I had a lot of back in in those days there was a lot of surf life surf life saving was big and there was a lot of guys that were you know 18, 19, 20, around that, that mark that were a lot faster than me. So I, I sort of just got in behind them in training and, and just naturally kept getting better and always had someone to chase. And I just sort of followed that path. It wasn't really um, like I didn't have a specific plan like some kids do these days. They have like a plan when they're really young and they need to follow that strict plan. So I just sort of progressed from there and I, and the the day came where I had to sort of move on and, and, and chase bigger things in Newcastle. And that's when I moved into the, the Hunter Swim Club to train under 
Eric Arnold at about 14 or 15 years of age and did about two seasons with, um, with Eric and then I moved over to Shane. And then at about 16, you might remember this, I came down to the AIS for a, um, for a trial for I think it was about two weeks or something like that. And that, I think it was about 2008 or end of 2008. And then um, after that two-week trial, I just packed up everything and I, I moved down to Canberra. Yeah, we'll get into that a little bit later on. So as a kid growing up, you're also very, very good at, um, at the surf stuff, at surf life-saving and, and state champion yep. as well. Was, was that ever going to be a serious career path for you or did you have to make a conscious choice or, or how did you come to the point of uh, making swimming your priority sport? Well, my goal growing up was I wanted to be a part of the Nutri Grand Ironman series. You know, my heroes growing up were, you know, obviously Hackey and Thorpey and those guys, but my biggest heroes were Kai Hurst and Trevor Henty and the guys of, of that nature. So, especially like growing up in Newcastle, I wanted to chase the Ironman dream. And it wasn't until I was about 14 or 15 where I remember the, the, the day, like it was yesterday, Eric Arnold sat both my dad and myself down and he sort of said, how serious are you about this swimming? And, and me and dad just kind of looked at each other and just, you know, and, and yeah, we're pretty serious. And he goes, well, you need to choose right here, right now, what you want to do. Do you want to go down that path and be like sort of everyone else in this town? Or do you want to go down this path where I think you can be? And I think you can make a run at the um, 2008 Olympics, but the 2012 Olympics, I really think you're, you can be something really special. And I remember walking away from that conversation with Eric thinking, like what like no way like there's no way i can be as good as those guys there's no way i can be um and eric knew what he team. was eric knew what he was talking yeah, about yeah for those people out there eric arnold was you know synonymous with australian swimming for a very long time he produced number of numerous australian representatives and state representatives and state and national champions so that's what sort of impacted me my dad we walked away and just said you know do we have a he asked me do you want to have a crack at this and I said yeah yeah let's see how it goes and I remember for that six months after that chat I just put everything into my swimming and just put the surf surf club scene aside for put the board paddling aside and and just really focused in on on my swimming and I went to the national age um, titles and I think I picked up three or four silver medals or something like that what age was that pretty sure that was 14 or 15 I think it was 15s actually. Yeah. And that was ranging from the 200, 400. No, it was the 100, 200, 400, 1500. So I had great scope. I, as a kid, I had, I had some speed, but also I had the middle distance, you know, anaerobic stuff. And I also had the endurance for the 1500. So there was a number of options for me in terms of which event I could swim later on because I had such an enormous base when I was, when I was a little, um, little, little tacker. So, um, yeah, it was probably at that age when I was in at Hunter that I sat down with Eric and, and we had that conversation. And since then, it's lucky he did have that conversation with both my, my dad and myself. Yeah, well, he, he was able to pick it early. Um, yeah. Obviously, like you said, you had, you had a huge base to, to work from. Where did that sort of work ethic come from? And, and that enabled you to have more and more options later on in your career about which, which direction to sort of go. But um, what was your training load when you moved to Hunter at that 14, 15 year old age group, when you started making moves and getting national age medals and, and yep. um, 
you know, like you said, you, you're chasing your training partners, but you obviously had a, a fair bit of self-determination and, uh, and, and work ethic. Yeah, well, so I think growing up in Newcastle, you know, back in the early 2000s, we it was essentially a very, you know, blue-collar type town. Now it's gotten a little bit more trendy and um, it's still got a little bit of feel about it. But back then it was just, it was tough though with a tough city like you know with you know the nights back in the early in the late 90s and there was just that real toughness about the town and um i think that was just instilled in you just from a very young age like my dad he was a swimmer and i remember him taking me down to the bars when i was eight nine ten years old in the middle of winter and it was completely freezing and just little stuff like that was and i had um, a lot of coaches that had um sort of that old school mentality of you know further the better and harder the better type type work and type training so i i just think that was just naturally instilled in you at a very young age i don't think um back then growing up as a kid you didn't have options in terms of oh i want to go do the sprint set or i want to go do this set there was just there was just not that option and i maybe i was on the end of that that sort of era of real old school tough work no bs about it just get in do the work and put in a good effort every single time no matter how you're feeling so i had that that attitude literally instilled in me from when i was 10 or 11 without even knowing it that's good so happens. i remember a story that um one of my first training sessions i went and trained with eric he would we were trained at Lambton Aquatic Centre, and and before before we get in, he he he'd read the session. He'd have his little notebook out, and he'd go, you know, ten to two freestyle on two twenty, whatever. But in those days in winter, there was like it was probably five or six degrees, and you just have the winter wind that's just coming in and just freezing. We're standing and like you know you know togs and just absolutely freezing. And he'd he'd sort of itch over and itch over, get closer to you, like he's going to show you his notebook, and then he get so close to you you'd be like, oh, this is, this is, you know, what's he doing here? And then you just go bang and hit you in the chest and go, well, there's your heart starter and there's your warm up. And you get, <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I, always, I always remember that. It was just like called the heart starter warm up. And anyone that swam under Eric or swam at Hunter would, would, um, would know that it was, wasn't anything malicious. It was just, you know, but I think you'd get away with that now. No, no, no. But going through, some of those sets that you're doing, you know, those are elite level sort of training sessions. And we'll go get into some stories about uh, when you came down to the AIS and, and moved to Canberra on scholarship, but did that also doing those sessions, you know, in, in the back of your head, it was just, that's just how we swim. Then when you moved into an elite level team, it's pretty much the same thing. Like no one's really doing uh, 10 200s on quicker than 220 cycle unless you're an open water swimmer. Yeah, I mean, I mean, 10 200s on 220, like it's sort of, it's not irrelevant, but it's sort of, it's not really that specific to what, to anything really. You know, it's just sort of general conditioning and that general sort of uh, thresholdy type work. So, I mean, when I came to the AIS, it was, it was still the same effort and still the same no bs about it it was just a bit more specific and tailored to what you were training for so at that time when i came to the AS, i was i was lumped in with with you and you were <laughs> so good at the time i think you were like 348 or something like at the time and 
maybe in 346, I can't really remember. And I think I was only 357 or 56 or something like that. So I got lumped in with you and I just remember just trying to keep up and I'm just getting absolutely swallowed and you had such good underwaters and push-offs and kick-outs and stuff. And I'd just be going, what is this? And I was putting in this effort, but I was just getting, and you probably remember that as well. I was just getting absolutely just torched on my terms every single time. And it was, like I said, it wasn't really necessarily about how hard and how long you can go for. It was just a lot more specific and planned approach rather than just get in and go. Yeah. Yeah, let's get into uh, when you came down to Canberra on a trial. It was the end of 2008. I, I remember it. And I was the one who, who showed you, had to chauffeur you around for a couple of weeks. And you must have yeah. been 16 or, or maybe just turned 17. I think you were still in school. Um, yeah. What was that like for you from, from your point of view? And, and this is also after the Olympics training with Vince Rayleigh. We had, a, we had one of the best teams in, in the world. I think uh, Brenton Rickard, Olympic medalist, and then a lot of 200 freestyle boys with, with Pat Murphy, Nick Frost, Kirk Palmer, Ash Delaney in the yep. backstroke and Linda McKenzie too. That was, a, that was a very strong squad that you walked into. Yeah, absolutely. I remember the first time I walked on, on deck at the old pool and I remember walking into the deck, walking on pool deck and then you guys had your own locker and you guys had to show me the locker and I walked out on pool deck and there was, you know, Pat Murphy, Brenton Rico, and Ash Delaney, Nick Frost, Kirk Palmer, yourself, and the, all these guys were just top international athletes. And it was one of the statistics that everyone from Vince's squad that went to the Olympics came home with a medal. So I've gone from a six-lane indoor 25 in Newcastle to two 50-meter pools training with Olympic medalists in the space of two weeks. And I was just like, I didn't want to put a foot out of place. I was like, hey, I'm Tom, like, nice to meet you. I'm, I'm the kid from Newcastle, and I didn't. I just I remember thinking like I don't, I don't know how to stretch. I'm just going to sit here and pretend like I'm doing a hip flexor stretch and, <laughs> and just act like I know what I'm doing until Vince comes out and tells us to get in the water. But over time, I remember just like watching you guys, just learning from you guys. I remember you did that. Um, I never saw that stretch that you used to do where you sit back on your heels and then you would go back and stretch your heels and then you used to be able to stand on your heels on the, on your um on your feet that were sort of flexed into that um, flexible position. And I remember just thinking like, wow, I've got so much to learn. I've, I've walked in this environment and uh, this is my, this is me every single day. I've got so much to learn and um, I learn off the best, the best people. Um, so it wasn't for me, it wasn't like, Oh, I'm homesick or anything like that. It was more in, in excitement and enjoyment and let's see how far we can take this thing. So yeah, that was probably the, the peak time for, for the AIS because also in, in that squad, it was very successful. But you also had Shannon Rollison with, with his girls um, that won a lot of Olympic medals and, and John Fowley's squad down there as well. So I think together we all made up, you know, almost one third or, or half of the Australian team at the time. And it was a big, uh, it was a privilege to be able to go down to the Institute and, and move down there um, and live down there as well. So what was it like living on residence? I remember um, it was just like a whirlwind experience because I was so young. I had to sign in and sign out of the, the resis. And it was just such a whirlwind because I went from living at home with my dad to all of a sudden I'm living with the swimmers. I'm living with the boxers. I'm living with the basketballers, netballers, soccer players. I'm living with all those people. And 
like as you walk out of the dining hall, some people might know that you have like a pool table and a ping pong table and you get to eat food for free. You get to eat Milo at all, you know, times of the night and all that type of stuff. And, and on top of that, I, I had to do my, I did finish my year 11 in Newcastle and then I had to um, go to the local school, um, Lake Genindira College to finish my year 12 education. And it was, it was just, just a different experience. It, I really wish that they still had that environment going for kids these days because I, I really 110% believe that it fast tracks anyone's development and it's such a good environment to learn off the best if the best, you know, obviously if the best are in that environment, but it's just such a good environment for young kids to go and, and, and learn the ropes of what it takes to be a good athlete because I still... The stuff that I learned at AIS, I still use to this day in my career. So, yeah, it, great place. Yeah, I agree. I, I moved down there straight after the HSC about 18 months before you did. And I remember that one of the first weekends uh, we were there, we had uh, Alice Mills's 21st birthday party. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like 18 and we'll dress up as some characters or something. And I'm looking around the room and there's all these world champions and, and Olympic medalists and, and the sort of, yeah, having a good time and, and I thought yeah same thing how did I come from Wollongong down into this and then you know come Monday morning everyone's back into work and uh, uh, into, yep. into hard training as well and and um, for me being in that squad like yourself just looking up to those guys and, and copying those guys I remember that ankle stretch that you were talking about is something that me and Ash Delaney just sort of figured out and just sort of made up on yep. the spot and then it the how it just improved our underwater kicking in that phase. And we got really competitive with it on dry land and in, and in the water, it was just, it just, like you said, it just fast tracked everything. And I remember yeah. having so many good uh, kicking battles with Pat Murphy, cause I'd never been beating a freestyle kick on a board my whole life at this point. I, I probably told myself I was the best yeah. freestyle kicker in the world. And then all of a sudden I had a guy go head to head with me, which just made me just, which just pushed me even more. So and then when you came along, um, you were just a young yeah. guy. You, you wouldn't go away, you know. You wouldn't get tired and tuck a pool boy in and you'll swim all day. <laughs> yeah. I remember, like, one of the first times, I, I never lifted a weight, basically, until I, I got to the AIS. I, I did a little bit of gym, but it wasn't really that much. And I remember the first session walking into the gym there. I don't know if many people have been there, but when you walk into the AIS gym, it's just... I reckon it's as big as a football field and it's got everything. It's got an indoor track. It's got um, every single machine you can think of. It's got, um, it's got Gatorade on hand. It's got Masashi on hand or protein powder recovery shakes on hand. And I remember walking in and I, I walking over to, cause back in Newcastle, we just used to wear whatever to gym. It wasn't really that important, but I remember walking in with a singlet and I had board shorts on and runners and I walked into the gym and, we, and, and, you might remember Dave Clark. And as soon as I walked in the gym and he goes, he looks at me and looks up and down and he goes, what are you wearing? I go, oh, I'm here to do gym. This is my gym clothes. And he goes, don't you ever come back into my gym wearing board shorts ever again. And I was just like, what? And he goes, go back to Reggie's and get changed. <laughs> and I remember walking back over to Reggie's just absolutely bawling my eyes out because I just got yelled at for wearing board shorts on my first ever gym session. So <laughs> Just stuff like that, you just, it was so good for me to learn. And uh, I've got so many of those little stories that are just, 
look back and go, wow, that was a really learning experience and probably something that I wouldn't have learned until I was a little bit older. So stuff like that and, and many more pool sessions um, like that as well. Yeah, well, as we keep mentioning, that that fast track, you're not only the athletes you're around, but the coaches, the gym coach, the, the psychologists, everybody around there. I probably didn't realise that at the time, but they're basically Australian leaders in their field or, or world leaders in their in their field. And and um, so about six months later, 2009, you, you won the 400 IM in 2009, did you? 2010 at Nationals? No, it was 2000 and... At 2000, I was second in 2009, and I was I won 2010. Yeah, yeah, so you're on the Australian team by you know within 18 months, and yep. uh, Australian champion on on the way to that would have been Com Games trials 2010. Yeah, it was there was in my events the 400 medley and the 200 meter freestyle. The the big barriers as you're coming through the ranks is 420 in the 400 IM and and 150 in the 200 meters freestyle, and I was. I think coming in, I was about 426 or 427 for the 400 IM, and I was about 152 or 151 in the in 203. And I remember thinking, right, let's see how long it takes me to get under these marks. And I remember it was, I think it was a Santa Clara meet in 2009. Um, after I think about eight months after being at the institute, I think I went 419 or something like that and got under the 420 mark for the first time, and then. A couple of months later, I mean, no, it was at that trials in 2009. I went 149.99 or something like that. I remember it as being, it was in the B file and I was just so, I was so happy that I got under 150. And that was within 12 months of me being there and just being a lot more specific around the type of work that I was doing. So, um, like I said, it's it's such a good environment to, to fast track your career. You know, you had um, like someone like a James Roberts was there, Tomasa de Sonia was there. And those guys at the same time were just came through and just lit the world on fire and just were improving out of sight. So Tom, tell us about, before we move on to the rest of your career, cause you were down in Canberra for a few years, but tell us some funny stories about uh, what living at the AIS is like. Yeah, we had so many good memories of, of, of living at the AIS and um, so many stories that I could tell you, but probably one that comes to mind was, I remember living on Resi's. We used to have um, the Canberra Raiders who would play, as you know, about 200 metres up the road at, at, at the football stadium there. And every home game, there would have been, you know, 20, 30,000 people coming into the stadium. And on the ALES property, there was there was parking alongside where the Resi's are. I'm sure if your listeners know where the new Resi's is, there's a, there's a, car, there's a gravel dirt car park um, just to the left or as to the right when you're walking into resis and every home game, these people would just park in there and, you know, not pay for parking in it and it'd just be so packed. So the people that lived in on resis would park in that car park normally. But if you went out in the weekend and came back when, not, when there was a home game on, you wouldn't be able to park anywhere. So I remember at the time me and my, my roommate just went, you know, what the hell with this? We, we got a piece of rope and we drew up on a bit of paper, a bit of cardboard, you know, parking 10 or $15 um, for the football game. And we just, why we did it was we didn't want people to come in there and steal our car spots. We didn't really essentially go in there to make money. Money was the, was the end product. But sure, sure. Um, we, we just put up this robe and go, surely no one's this silly to trust, you know, two young kids to give them their money and park in here. And lo and behold, well, I think at the end of the day, we had about, 
four to five hundred dollars worth, you know, of parking parking um, tickets or parking. Um, that's how much we collected. And I remember towards the end, as as we were making money, I, I remember this this car driving past, and it was our head coach Shannon Rollinson driving past. And I remember looking up, and as we were collecting money from someone. <laughs> He, he looked at us and, and anyone that knows Shannon, he gets like bright red when he gets really angry. <laughs> and I remember being my housemate on Monday morning when we got called into the, to the head office and um, Shannon just went, ripped us a new one. But I think secretly Shannon was like, you know, like that's pretty you know, innovative boys, well done. But it, on, on the surface, he was furious and so <laughs> angry. But at the end of the end of it, we had to give the money back and had to, you know, apologize to the AIS and acknowledge we did the wrong thing. But we were just so fed up with people coming in and, and, and taking our car spots. And we couldn't have anywhere to park. We had to park like a kilometer down the road just to get back to Resi. So we just went and held it and took it in our own hands. <laughs> oh, man. Shannon was, Shannon was an angry man 10 years ago as well. I, I copped a few of those too. But who'd you give the money back to? You can't track down the people. I don't know. I don't know where the money went to. That's the thing. I remember went handing to Shannon, over the money. I think. Yeah, handing over the money and going, I wonder where this money's going to. Um, but yeah, Shannon, I remember Shannon used to just, he's such a good coach, but you just have, have this side where you just get really passionate and emotional. But, you know, so much respect for Shannon. He's such a good coach and, um, you know, he's, he's a good friend and um, I've got a lot of time for Shannon. But, in that moment, I'm pretty sure he didn't really like me too much as a 17, 18 year old kid doing this, <laughs> taking money from people for football games. <laughs> oh, good story. All right, now you, you make 2010, you start making Australian teams and, and you're off to Delhi. And, and I remember Pampax over in, uh, in California that year as well. That was pretty fun. And, and um, tell us a couple of highlights and a few stories about, um, about the few of those trips we took in 2010. Yeah, so Pampax in, in um, Irvine, California was my first international senior team and meet. And um, I performed really well. I think I was fourth in the 200 freestyle behind Parky, Vander Kay and Lochte, I think. So I was stoked with that result. I actually, I broke the national record in the 400 IM heat, but I ended up getting disqualified for the back to best breast turn. Apparently I rolled over on my front too much. Um, so that was a bit shattering. But apart from that, had a really good meet. I remember my first encounter racing the great Michael Phelps was in the 4x2 freestyle relay and I was leading off at night. And I remember just looking across lane four was the Americans and we were obviously in lane five. I think the Japanese were in three and someone, some of the teams were on the outside lanes. But I remember standing up behind the blocks looking towards Michael and I just remember thinking, just back yourself here. Just go with him for as long as you can and go as hard as you can for as long as you can basically because you don't know when you know you'll get to race this guy again so I dove in and I remember like coming into the 100 meter wall I was looking across and I could see Michael and I was with him I was like neck and neck with him going into the 100 meter wall and um, people might see have seen it on my Instagram story where um, the American commentator was like oh Fraser Holmes just got hammered with that wall or whatever he said he was just like Fraser Holmes uh uh back off I don't know if people have seen that on the Instagram but I remember coming into the 100 meter wall and I, I was so excited that I was next to Michael that I ended up missing the wall when I did a flip turn of the wall I, I completely missed the wall so I essentially dead started the, the second 100 
And I remember looking across, just seeing Michael doing one of his trademarks, 10 to 12 metres underwater and just massive dolphin kicks. And I mean, oh, that's, I remember thinking to myself, oh, this is going to look good. <laughs> but I think I flipped to the, to the feet and it was like 51.2 or something like that. My PB for the 100 at the time was like 50.5 or something like that. So I was essentially going out of my PB. Um, for the 100, but I think I ended up splitting a PB for my 247 low at the time or something like that. So it ended yeah. up being a good swim, but I got smashed on that 110. You were so fearless as a, as a young kid racing and, and so good leading off relays, which is why you probably let off a few Olympic relays as well. But you, at the time, I remember you and, and Kenny Monk were our gun 200 freestylers up against Phelps and Lochte. And Phelps and Lochte are obviously like just absolute dolphins underwater, and, and you and Kenny couldn't do a dolphin kick to save yourself yeah that's right i was more so the um well because i came from that real old school kind of training in my early days we didn't really focus on the underwater too much it was just more or less get on top of the water and just swim so yeah going up against those guys was sometimes although i did get the better i think 2014 got the better of ryan in that one i don't think michael did it but yeah I remember in uh, at those perm packs in California, I met you at the pool one Arvo, and you were just like, like starstruck, like super excited, and you're like, yeah, I just got to lift back from uh, from the pool with Ryan Lochte, and you went into a private <laughs> car, and this is this is like peak Lochte, like hair down yeah. shoulders, like like crazy shoes, like just had so many yeah. fans following him around, and and he what happened? He invited you into his into his van. Yeah, so we. Um... Was it with you? I was with. I wasn't in there, no. No, who was? I, I was with someone else in there, and I, I, we missed the bus because I, I think it was that morning I had the 400 IM heats and I got disqualified. And it, the 400 IM is normally like on the last last program of, the last event on the program normally. But I remember we missed the bus, and then I was waiting for something to happen, and then Ryan was just like, "Hey, why don't you come in our car?" Blah blah, and. I remember just getting in the car and I, I don't think it was like a 20 minute drive. I don't think you could, I think I smiled for 20 minutes straight, <laughs> you know, like at the time, like this guy, like Ryan was breaking like world records left, right and center. And um, yeah, it was obviously someone that you looked up to, but it was obviously your competitor. So um, yeah, being an 18 year old kid was, you know, it was pretty exciting. Yeah. So you go from, uh, making the Australian team, you're making these finals. I think you got a few medals in uh, at the Com Games in Delhi and, and a couple of years later at, at the Olympics, you you again find yourself in, in those big time finals and, and Olympics is a big step up from, from any other competition. What are your memories from, from those races and, um, and that overall experience at your first Olympic Games? Yeah, well, I remember the one thing I remember from, from the, the London Games was standing behind the blocks in the 400 IM heats. And I remember two of my heroes in the 400 IM were Laszlo Shea and Michael Phelps. So I've never seen them guys, those guys swim um, the 400 IM together live. And I remember, because I was in, I think I was in lane three or something, the next heat and they were in four and five. And I remember just watching them come swim down the last 50 and just going, whoa, how good is this? And then thinking like, oh, I've got to swim my heat now. Um, but um, those games, like I made all my finals, I swam all PBs um, in the tournament of freestyle final. It was the same thing. It was out of the eight guys in the final, I think five of the guys were already Olympic gold medalists. Um, so as a 20-year-old, I, I, 
I just loved it. You know, it was one of those things. It was just excitement. It was just, there was a lot of enthusiasm. There was a lot of passion. There was just, there was, um, yeah, just, just real excitement to be there. And yet, how proud are you coming from, from Newcastle and that sort of program to, to make Australian teams and, and to be in Olympic finals with, with world-class swimmers? You know, it's a, it's just continues to be a, a monumental step up. Yeah, well, you know, coming from Newcastle, it's predominantly a football town. It's normally like a rugby league town. So to be a swimmer from Newcastle and, and to reach the highest level was just, um, yeah, it was awesome. We obviously had like the likes of Justin Norris back in the 2000 games who won a bronze medal. So the tradition and, and the legacy was there from swimmers from Newcastle. And, and I remember just, you know, thinking I want to continue this this trend and legacy. So moving on a couple more years and you make the move to uh, to Miami in Queensland, I think around about that time. And in 2014, you're, you're Com Games champion, the 203. So big international gold medal and, and you swim 145.0. Tell us about that one in Glasgow. Yeah, it was around that time where me and Cam had um, just battles every time we swam the 203. So I think we, we dead heated three or four times in that race. Um, so it was just, it was at the perfect, sort of time in my career I was still young I was super fit and I was super fast I remember on that night I swam the PB I had the 400 IM on that same night at the Commonwealth Games um so it was kind of I couldn't when I won the Commonwealth Games and won you know swam PB and, and won the gold medal it wasn't like I could be super excited and super over the moon with it because 45 minutes later I had to stand up and, and swim the 400 IM so um obviously to this day it's still my pb in the personal best time it kind of wish i just swam that 0.9 you know nine of a second faster so i could get under that 145 zero dip into the 44 mark but yeah great memories and, and obviously a great result yeah so you were number one in the world in in that event for that calendar year and probably the first guy in the 203 to be number one in the world since since thorpey um what were the expectations like after that? Because you, you were the man and you had worlds the next year and Olympics, um, you know, we're in the middle of that Olympic cycle and yep. you've been in those finals before. Now you, you're winning international medals. What, what were your goals leading into 2016? Well, my goals was just to, to be able to replicate what I did um, two years earlier, because I knew that would have been round about there. Um, for a medal or potentially even, even, you know, winning gold, which inevitably ended up, I think 44, six or something like that, won the gold medal and 45, two was the silver. So um, in terms of times I would have been, I was right there, but um, I think maybe like in 2016, I, I committed myself to too many events. Um, I should have in hindsight and hindsight's always a good thing. Um, probably just committed to either the, the 400 I am or the 203 because you have to on the first days of 400 IM and then the second days of 23 heats and then you have to go heat semi-final so I remember coming to the semi-final just being super fatigued and as you know at international meets these days in the semi-finals it's it's almost quite often a lot of the times faster than what the final so I'm in and I I was just off the pace and I just I, I just believe that I just probably committed to too much at that level and and um probably should have you know specified a little bit better in my events yeah it's a gift and a curse that 400 im we obviously hear yep. Phelps and and lock you speak about how hard it is how hard it is to train and 
into racing and you've got to do two of them on the same day as well. So, you know, it's, uh, I know it's an event that you've been trying to get away from, but it always comes back to be your, your bread and butter. It's, it's your baby. It's the one that's going to get you a ticket to all these things. Yeah. It's my, it's, it's, you know, it's a love hate relationship. <laughs> you, you love it, but you hate doing it. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those events you just got to want to do and you got to want to have the drive for it. And you got to, I guess it's like similar, similar to swimming a 1500. You got to want to swim those events and you got to want to take it on and not be half hearted when you're doing it. So yeah, I think 400 a is probably my, <laughs> my best event, but I, I, I absolutely love the 200. Yeah. Well, you made the move to, uh, to Dennis Cottrell at Miami for that Olympic cycle, that 2012 to 2016. And I've just written here that, that training group off the top of my head, you had, you had Sun Yang obviously coming in and out, Hacky on the comeback trail, Dan Smith, who's probably one of the most naturally talented swimmers out there, and, and Geordie Harrison, who was, who was doing good things as well. Tell us about how hard training was and pushing yourself with, along with those guys at, at different times and, and some of the sets that Dennis would dish up to you. Yeah, I mean that 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 group we had from two thousand, oh, essentially two thousand and twelve to two thousand and sixteen to the trials was just every day was just like going training with your mates and it was just probably looking back on it now so lucky to have the people that we had to make up the group dynamics, and I think a lot of people get misconstrued about Dennis's program thinking that. You know, he's very, he's tough and he's old school and all that type of stuff. But he can have certain elements of that in his training, but also the way that he explains and goes into detail about the mechanics of a stroke, especially a stroke like freestyle, is probably the best I've ever seen um, in terms of any coach or anyone explain the the the, uh, the mechanics of freestyle. But um, just the, 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 the speed and the quality that we would do things at would just would be the toughest bit. It wasn't necessarily like the, you know, the 12, 400s that was the hardest. It was the, it was the fifties and the hundreds at race pace that were the, the killer. Um, and we did a, we did a lot of that stuff. We did, you know, <laughs> stuff that would blow a lot of people's hair backs, put it that way. Yeah. So his, his training's not as old school as, as you think, like you said, with volume, because you guys, rarely go over 70k but 70k yep. weeks but it's um it's almost like long distance race pace training right volume high volume yeah. race pace essentially we we lo we worked a lot in that um that best pace average zone for a lot of our stuff you know like the you know a classic set for us was was 1250s three times at 200 meter speed um, so just a lot of that two to 400 meter type work that we were just, we were in that zone very, very consistently. And I think over time is, you know, if you can handle it, it's, it's really good. But if obviously if you can't, you know, sustain the workload and your body's not robust enough to handle it, you can get yourself into a little bit of a hole and, and, and struggle to come out of it. But um, a lot of people probably don't know that Dennis started off as a sprint coach back in back in the day. So Dennis is, um, you know, some of the stuff that we would do, like we come in on Friday morning and, and swim 3K easy and then come in the night and have our quality set. It's not like every session was 6 or 7K sort of 
short rest stuff. So we had a really good blend of obviously Geordie suing the 1500 and then both Dan and myself suing the, the 200 and, and Grant coming back suing the 200. So we had a really good mix of, um, mix of people. Yeah. Let's get into some, uh, some training sets. I'm, I'm a swimming coach now and loved uh, training with different coaches to see what they give you guys. Tell us something that stands out in your mind that, that you did or, or something that you saw. I'd love to hear something that Hacky was doing in the pool at 35, 36 years old and, uh, and even getting into a lot of people don't know at the, the high level that Sun Yang trained at. Tell us, tell us a couple of things like that. It wouldn't be uncommon for at the end of, you know, a hundred set for a lot of people to push 52, 53, 54 um, for push hundreds on the end of sets. But certainly a set that comes to mind that I, I definitely didn't enjoy was we used to do a set. It was a 50, 150, 100 and a 206 times. And that was on 50 second cycle. And it was just best average from start to finish. So it was 3K of just essentially best average. And I remember the standard, like our standard was, um, you know, our base level standard was 60s. So that would be 30 seconds, 130, 60, and then two minutes. So that was just, that was the entry level for us. And uh, just some of the battles that we used to do, I remember like, you know, the days, the early days when Sun Yang was swimming the 1500, he'd, he'd be able to finish in sub 150 on the last set and, um, push 53s and all that type of stuff. And, you know, I'm here swimming 155s on the last, 156s on the last reps. And I'm thinking that's really, you know, that's quite average. But, you know, to a lot of people, that's quite good. So I think just the the standard that we had was was just, that was it. You know, it wasn't, it was just set, the bar was set at such a high level. It was day in, day out. It was, it was just competitive all the time. And I remember... One year it was in 2012, we had the Miami Super Challenge. And I remember it was torrential rain. It was a cyclone. It was cyclonic weather. And I remember to get on the podium in the Fauna Freestyle at the Miami Club Challenge, Sun Yang went 3.42. Another Chinese guy went 3.45. Another other Chinese guy went 3.45. So to get, on, to get on the podium at the Miami Challenge meet, you had to go 3.45. So... And I'm pretty sure that was after like a 60 or 70k week in the pool. So <laughs> it was just incredible. The, the the standard was just set at such a high um, high bar. Correct. That's that's just incredible. But correct me if I'm wrong. I, I remember years ago you you told me that that exact set, and you you said soon finished at 146. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure that was that was it was around that sort of time. Yeah, uh, and I was in the lane. I was in the lane next to Sun. So. Unbelievable. Um, yeah. Well, it is unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, going on um, after 2016, obviously you, you didn't make that 200 freestyle final. Um, your PB is 145.0 from a few years before. That, that would have been good enough to sneak ahead of Chad and Connor Dwarf is silver, and then and uh, soon the only one going under 140, 145 to to win gold. Um, you know. Does that does that motivate you to get back there, or what? What were the feelings after that, not being in the final, and then actually watching it and thinking it wasn't that quick? You know, I remember thinking when I I finished ninth and I was forty six zero in the semi, 
I'm pretty sure, 46-1 or something like that. And I missed it by one one hundredth. I think James Guy was eighth and I was ninth. And I remember thinking, oh, all I needed was that extra 24 hours rest and I would have been good because I had the 400 IM heats, heats finals, and then the next day, the now late finals. Yeah, and the finals didn't, you didn't, weren't getting back to bed till like 3 a.m. or something like that. So I just remember thinking, oh, if I just had one 24 hours rest and I, made this, and I made the final, if I had that 24 hours rest, I knew it would have been, you know, a lot more fresh and ready to go. But that's the story of Olympics. How many times have you heard, oh, I wish I had this and I wish I did that, you know? So I remember, and I, I think I led the relay off a couple of nights later and like a 45, six or seven or something like that. So that would have been in the, in the medal hunt. So I knew I was there, but I just needed to, like I said before, just probably be a bit more specific in, in what events I swam. Yeah. So how does that um, spur you on for, for your next Olympic challenge in 12 months time? It'd be, it'd be your third Olympics and, you know, no doubt this will you know, be one of the last ones or, or your last Olympic period. What, uh, what are you going to do in the next 13 months or so to, to try and get that elusive Olympic medal. Yeah. Because that, that four by 200 teams reigning world champions now. That's a, that's yeah. a big team. And I think having the success of last year creates a lot of hype and a lot of excitement here in Australia. So I know, um, I know for me personally, my probably individual aspirations are, are, are being put aside and, and I my entire career my individual you know accolades have come for me person on a personal level have come secondary to wanting the relay to do well and I think that's why I took a lot of pride in, in leading off the relay and I think for majority of my career a lot of my PBs in the tournament freestyle came from leading off a relay at that international meet so I I just want to see that relay do well and I want to see them you know as close to top of the podium as they possibly can and, and if I just want to be a part of that and I want to I want to um, see that team do really well so um, I think you've got off the top of my head you could probably list eight to ten people that could be on that team next year so for me the next 12 months is just try and get back to that that level of 145 and that's that's going to be the the you know, what's required to make top six, I feel. You know, that's how good the depth is here in Australia, especially with the older guys and the younger guys coming through. Yeah, I remember watching that that 4 by 2 final in Korea. That was one of the best races of the meet because there were about six teams that could win it and, and everybody pulled, uh, did their part and, and Mac obviously had a huge last 100 to win. But when they won, my first thought was, was you, you weren't part of that team. You weren't in the heats there to receive that gold medal. And you were probably the leader of that, that four by 200 from, from 2010 all the way through to, through to 20, you know, 17, 2018. I felt, yeah, I felt I, bad I, that you weren't a part of that in that moment, even though you were on the Australian team and you were part of it. But Yeah. For me, it was, that didn't really matter for me. It, it kind of, I remember I was with, um, who was I with? I was with, no, I think I was just back with myself because I had the 400 medley heats the next day. So I had to get my rest in Korea. And I remember like I was, I was crying when I was back at the village by myself because I was just so overjoyed and so happy that finally we're back there. And finally that's all I wanted the team. And that's all I wanted, you know, that relay to, to accomplish was that 
I just wanted us to win. And that, and that I think to this day is probably one of the best moments in my swimming career. That I was a part of that, even though I was in the heats, but I was a part of that team that won that. Yeah, that's awesome. That's, that's awesome to hear. And, and not many people would be feeling like that because there's, there's a lot of other emotions that go into that when you see your teammates win. So that's, that's awesome. And that's why you're one of the leaders of the Australian team. Just a couple more questions to, to finish off um, that I wanted to ask you. Um, who have been the biggest influences in your career as terms of maybe mentors or, or, or heroes growing up or your parents or coaches? Who, who have been some of those key people that have been you, with you for most of the way? Oh, probably the first person or people that come to mind is my parents, obviously. Um, you know, without my parents' support, I... I you know, and encouragement, I wouldn't have taken that step to go to Canberra and I wouldn't have probably achieved what I achieved. So definitely my parents and now obviously with Jess, um, my fiance is obviously a huge part of my life. And in terms of swimming, you know, Dennis has, has been a huge part of my life. Um, not only that with, you know, obviously splitted ways, you know, coach athlete wise, but I still talk to Dennis on a regular basis. And yeah, there's a few other people in the game that that I that I go to and and just bounce ideas off and and just really go to when I need people to go to. So definitely that close knit family connection is is probably something that's got me through my entire career. Yeah, definitely. You can't no swimmer can do it without their parents and without having a good relationship with with a coach somewhere along the trail. And you've worked with uh, well since you since you made Australian teams with with basically three of the best Australian coaches of this, of this sort of era in, in Vince Rayleigh, Dennis, and, and now you're with, uh, with Michael Boll, who's got a huge reputation in Australia. What are the, what are the comparisons and, and the differences between those three guys in, in terms of their, their training, but also their, their personality and their character that, that makes it fit for you? Yeah, I think like, starting up with Vince, as you know, Vince was such a good person at, at planning and doing everything for the right reason. Very tough, very specific though. Moving on to Dennis, I think Dennis made me, helped me go to that next level and helped me realize sort of my full potential and, and was there on a daily basis to get that out of you. And I think Dennis was, you know, for me, almost, well, he's like a second father figure to me. And, um, especially through those formative years is, you know, 18 through to 25. Um, and then moving on to Bowley, he's probably the, you know, the, the perfect personality and perfect person for, you know, the stage of my career that I'm at now. So both unique and different in, in, in many ways. So, and you can't really say who's, you know, who's the best or who's better, you know, because they're all so different and so good at, you know, what, what they do. So very lucky to be, um, to be a coach by all those guys. Yeah, you've you might have got lucky and, and timed it perfectly throughout your career to get to get Bowley at the end, to get to get Dennis when you're in that age where you can handle that sort of work and um and have Vince yep. and exposure of the AAS um as a teenager. So I think that's definitely worked in your favour and you've worked with those guys and you've been around been on teams for a long period of time and I heard on another podcast that you actually wanted to get into coaching, um, life after swimming. Yeah, definitely. It's something that Coaching really, you know, 
excites me and I'm getting to that point now where I want to see people do well and, and I want to have, you know, a helping hand in that and I want to guide people to be successful. And for me, the challenge is I do have a big swimming brain and um, swimming wealth of knowledge. It's just transferring that and channeling that into, into coaching. And, you know, I'm, I've still got some unfinished business in the pool, but I'm certainly looking forward to, to getting in, into the coaching world. And you've got your own clinics business as well. Let's talk a little bit about that just to get your, uh, just to get your feet wet into the, the coaching and the teaching side of things. That's been pretty successful. Yeah, there was a kind of, there was a couple of reasons behind the clinics. It was, you know, the idea behind why not me swim clinics was to provide people with, you know, the inspiration of, you know, why not me? Why can't I go on and, and swim for Australia? Sort of whatever your sort of your aspirations were, we just sort of try to encourage that that mindset of you know why can't you do that? Um, and and let's get you going, let's get you tuned in and 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 pumped up and ready to go to to do it. And the other part was that was it was a good step for me because it I didn't don't have the time to commit to a full time coaching role, but on the weekends I do have time to to go and 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 you know and learn. Um, how to how to deal with people and and um, just as you said, get your feet wet in that sort of arena and that that sort of industry. So um, for me, it's been I've already learned a lot already, and and it just makes me more excited to get into that that um, career when when I do finish as um, being an athlete. And I bet you charge the parents for parking, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> Uh, I want to finish up. Maybe uh, I'll tell everybody a, a funny story about you and then maybe you can uh, reciprocate. But I remember your first drug test in Brisbane. <laughs> so it must have been, must have been end of 2008. You're, you're still underage. So I think Vince might have been your, uh, your chaperone or your, your adult there. We're at Chandler, end of Queensland States in December. And, and uh, you get pulled up in the last event for a drug test. You've never had one before and you're pretty scared <laughs> underage kid. And I remember being, I, I was, for some reason I was, I must've been in the last race with you. So it was me, you and Vince sitting there for a couple of hours. You can't pee too nervous. I'm starving. I just want to get the hell out of there. And um, they turned the lights off at Chandler. So it must've been nine or 10 PM where the last people in the building still can't pee so the drug tester gets in the, in the van with us and goes back to the hotel room where we were staying. And we were both, we were the, the two youngest in that, that squad. So I think we're in a two bedroom apartment with Vince from memory. And um, we order in a couple of pizzas and it must've been close to midnight after waiting about four hours plus <laughs> at, with a couple of teas behind you that you finally got the courage and you're busting and, and finally got your drug test done. What's, what's your uh, take on that one? Well, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure the, the only reason um, that I did end up providing a sample was that I don't think my bladder could hold it in anymore. And it just kind of, just kind of came out. <laughs> but I didn't like, I didn't think I was at that level to even be drug tested. So I, I was just this young kid coming through and then all of a sudden it was, you know, Hi, I'm here from Masada to come and drug test you. And I'm like, oh, what does that mean? You know, like I wasn't really like, you know, I guess like everyone's got those drug testing stories. I know that, you know, it's obviously as a young kid, it's a, it's a, not a difficult thing, but it's kind of an uncomfortable thing 
when you're quite young, um, just to go through for your first time. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people have got a funny stories about it. Their own personal one. Yeah, for sure. I wanted to ask you a question. I wanted to, I know you're a big, big swimming, um, I don't want to say nerd, but I know you know your history. If you were to have, or if you could choose an all time from Australia only, your four by one medley relay A team from any era, and you could bring him into today's era where they had the suits, the technology, and they had the kickers, and they had the new blocks, and they had everything available to them. Who would be your four by one medley relay team? Oh, interesting question. It's um, like you said. I love I love watching old races, and even as a young kid, I'd studied you know the Athens Olympics on TV and Barcelona World Champs and. That was when it was all on free-to-air TV, which which made it easy. Oh, it's hard, but growing up in in our sort of era, people who were successful at at the Sydney Olympics in two thousand are just absolute heroes for us. So I'd have to put I'd have to put Matt Welsh in backstroke, who was Olympic silver in that in that hundred backstroke, and um, I'm not too sure about what Australia's backstroke history. What did he go in the leadoff? Um, he went. What did he go in Sydney? He went about fifty-three-seven in in Sydney to get. Yeah. Kreiselberg and he got third in the 200 as well so um yeah. and he's a guy that that I was when I was coming through as a, as a short course backstroker that I was chasing and finished second to him a few times and he's one of the reasons why I, why I wanted to be so good at underwater kick because that was as you mentioned a lot of times that was the standard if, if you could an underwater yeah. kick with Matt Welsh you were going to get yeah. left behind nationally and internationally and then, and then another thing, probably going into the breaststroke. I mean, training with with Brent and Rickard for so long down in Canberra and um, watching. He was him always in, up for a relay. Yeah, he was. He was yeah. pumped for a relay. I mean, he got second in the two hundred breast at at, at um, Beijing Olympics, and he was world champion the year after. And I remember watching that that hundred breast in Rome in in the stands with the Australian team, and and um, you know it was such a close race. And as Rixie always does, he glides into the wall. And yeah. um, the guy in lane eight, I think the French guy almost almost touched him out. And um, he gets on the lane rope and, and fist pumps. And I remember seeing um, how pumped Vince was actually to to get uh, an individual world champion and, and world record holder and, and all the other coaches congratulating Vince. And that was something... It's pretty rare to see like, Vince that excited. Oh, yeah, that's easily <laughs> the most animated I've ever seen. Vince. You know, normally you think he doesn't have his eyes open when when you're racing, but... But um, he was fully pumped for that one. And, and that's probably a tough choice. I mean, in our breaststroke ranks with uh, Rixie and, and Christian Springer, we're just battling for probably the better part of 10 years together. And Christian obviously did so good at the end of his career to get, get a medal in that 100 breaststroke at, in, in London. But most of the time when, when they were racing at, at their peaks, uh, like Rixie was, was beating him. So I'd, I'd have to give the, the upper hand to him. And um, he's a guy that, that I think going into the other question about, about the body suits, like, like these big guys, these big, strong guys putting on body suits just floated so well and, and made them go so much faster. And that, that included Rixie. Um, yep. It would have been amazing to see, to see Hacky in one in, in his prime, being a, a big sort of six foot six kind of guy, 100 plus kilos, Thorpey as well. But even yeah. though Thorpey could... Um, could naturally float so well and, and guys like Michael Klim as well, it would have been, you know, equal opportunity. It would have been so interesting to see what people of different areas could do 
with this sort of technology. Back to the relay, you'd have to go Klimi on, on the butterfly. Um, okay. I don't know. Who's a... I mean, I remember Lord Stein got an Olympic medal in the 100 fly. Who else have we got? Klimi and Skippy I'd, got one in 2000. I'd Who put big Kyle Chalmers in there after ripping a 51 <laughs> something. Yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, we'll see what Carl can do. I'm, I'm happy he wants to take on that extra event. It's at the end of his program and he's, and he's got nothing to lose. So that'll be yep. interesting to see what he can do, sort of shaved and tapered. But I remember, you know, part of the reason I went to the AIS in, in 2007 was in that early 2000s and, and late 90s, you know, I'm a kid from Wollongong as well. We, we would do meets in Canberra once or twice a year. And Alex yep. Popov was down there and so many Klimi was down there. I remember, I remember getting autographs from these guys um, yep. and, and chatting with them and, and hanging out with them. I remember I saw Popov and I, I swear he was seven foot tall. He was the tallest yeah. guy I've ever seen. Um, I mean, imagine a guy like Popov in a bodysuit. He went 21.6 mm. with a cap on. In, in yeah, his, in DTs. In DT. So, and Klimi went... I think he went that 51-8-1 world record in Canberra in that in the old AIS pool, like and that. Ah, uh, was it? I think it was in. I think it was in Canberra. I have to ask Plumy or, or or look it up. But that was 90-1998. and that Australian record. Well, that world record stood until two thousand three, until Phelps and Crocker took it. So That's that right. record stood five years, and that Australian record stood until two thousand eight when when Lordo got it in a bodysuit. So that's like... Yeah, that's right. That's an iconic 51-second 100 fly. In um, DTs, wasn't it? Oh, it would have been close too. I mean, the late 90s, maybe had a maybe had a leg suit or Legs, something. Like yeah. But um, you can compare... If you're out there, Clemmy, let us know. <laughs> if you compare those suits now, I mean, I started wearing suits in 07, those old FS. Yeah. I mean, I'd take a pair of a pair of TYR Venzos right now over that. Yeah. Um, just the material and, and the compression. And I guess on the freestyle, like, you know, Australia's got such a good history. And I know. But, you know, Thorpe is obviously the iconic guy, but over 100 frees, I think his PB was only like 48.5 in the end, which doesn't... Yeah, I think he was bronze in 48.4 or something like that in Athens, maybe. Yeah, it's... Um, yeah. You know, on paper, it, it doesn't look that quick, but... Um, you know, you've obviously got Kyle, you've got Salo, um, you know, Maggie as well. I would have loved to have seen Maggie come through a few yep. earlier and see what he could do in a full bodysuit, you know, that kind yep. of guy that's, um, that already swims with such low drag and, and he's so strong in the water. A guy like Chris Feidler as well, you know, yep. big six foot six guy in a body, in a, in a laser bodysuit would just float so good. Uh, I remember um, at Jewel in the Pool in 2009, people were wearing those bodysuits. Remember that? Yeah, yeah, in camp. And I, I remember, yeah, and Maggie, he hadn't, he'd been training footy all season, been doing footy all winter, and I remember him coming down, and he, I think, I'm pretty sure he just rocked a pair of, like, suits that they wear now, and he, at 16 or 17, he rocked, like, a 50 low or something like that, and everyone was just like, whoa, what's, like, this kid's good, you know, like, so I think, yeah, what did he go in, in um, shorts, 47-0? We've had so many people go 47-0, haven't we? Yeah, well, I was coming across it the other day. I think Maggie's only like number four in Australia all time going 47-10 because you got yeah. Cam, 
Sullo and Kyle all going 47-0. And you go, like, at the time, that was such an iconic swim. Um, yeah. But it's like, actually, we've got three Aussies that have been quicker than that, which just, which just sort of blows your mind. But, I mean, in terms of sentimental value, to have to have Thorpey anchoring that team, that's, that's Thorpey, not going okay. to... He's not yeah, going to so uh, let anybody... So you've gone Welshie, Rixie, Klimi, mm. and Thorpey. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've, I think I chose I chose um, Mitch on the leadoff, and then I went with you. I went Rixie, but then I went with Lordo and Kyle. Yeah, yeah. So my guys, a lot of those times have been done in um, pretty modern times. But um, another one that I was thinking of before, like if if there was ever a um, an all time four by two freestyle, who would it be? You, of course. <laughs> um, oh, man. Well, I mean, we, we've What been, a team we, that would be. You know, Thorpe, Hackey, Klimi and yourself wouldn't lose. Well, then you've got, you got Clyde that's been under 45 this year. Yeah. You've, got, you've got Kenny that's been down 45 low. You've, you've got... Uh, it's, a yeah. it's a different time and a different era. But, but like, yeah. you know, when that men's 4 by 2 didn't lose from, I think, 98 through to 04. I remember watching Athens and that was when Phelps led his team. He got the lead over Hackey on the first leg and then um, Cleek Keller holds off Thorpey and, you know, that, that sucks that they lost two of the Americans as well and, and it took us yeah. a long time to get back on the podium and then back at the top as well after Thorpe and Hackey left. But, yeah. uh, I mean, Klimi, like, Hackey had an individual world record there and Klimi was world champion in that race but, Yep. You, know, you could go so many different ways, but from my experience, you know, I was on that team in 2009 that got third in Rome in the body yep. suit world champs. And, and um, you know, Kenny, Kenny Monk had to lead off against Phelps and Biederman <laughs> when Biederman was, was on fire. And, and I was... 0 whatever. Yeah, Kenny went like 145 yeah. low and just got his ass kicked. Yeah, so I'm, I'm second leg and standing behind these guys and the crowds going nuts. It's it's like 35 degrees in Rome. You're sweating in this tight black bodysuit. And yeah. um, what a period! I was pretty pumped up, but I jumped in and we're already like one and a half seconds behind the Americans <clears> next to us, and I think Japan might have been on the other side. But I remember just copping so many waves because that like. Yeah. Two meters, two to three meters behind somebody when you're like peak getting all of their waves, you know. If we're just yeah. half a second, there's ahead, no watch riding. Jump on the rope, but it was just yeah. just a whitewash. And um, in in that race as well, I think you know Tommaso De Sonia was only about 19, and he threw down a 140, 144. Yeah, I think. him and Pat 144s. Yeah, I remember yeah. that. Oh yeah, yeah. Tommaso might have been later, but um, yeah, Pat anchored in 144. Um, and he, I remember with, with, we, Pat jumped in third and Magnini on the other side of the pool for Italy, the, the home country went out real hard and, yeah. um, overtook. So Italy with third, you know, us and Russia were way out in front. So we're battling yeah. them for third and, um, and with 50 to go, the, the crowd's roaring because the, the Italian men are going to get a medal and, and Pat swims over the top and just touches him out and, and we got, that bronze medal, which was my first world champs medal, and that was that was yeah. Awesome. I remember one day at the RAS, Pat Pat's PB at the time was one forty five nine or something like that, 
and he put on one of these super suits and it was like after I think it was like in a time trial that Vince used to do quite regularly and maybe it was in the middle of the week or I went you know a session where they had a little bit easier and, and Pat put a suit on and he went 146.0 or something like that right on his PB and was just like what like everyone was just hot so yeah, good this suit era like it was like the suits had to get banned and I'm all for that but people who weren't living in that time like it was it was so exciting it wasn't necessarily fair but it was so exciting that anybody could go fast at any given time any in-season meet you didn't need to be shaved you only needed about 48 hours of rest and you could break a world record like I broke a world record the first time I put a suit on that's right you did too you know it was just you essentially didn't need to be shaved down didn't you no, nah, the, the the hair didn't the hair didn't matter, and the unpredictability of of any meet or any time trial or any training session was just um, it was fun, you know. Yeah, I remember um, Delaney put on a suit and and did like I don't know six fifties backstroke on five minutes and broke the Australian record five out of six times. I remember, like, yeah, I remember like that. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it was just yeah. and that's electronic timing at the old pool in Canberra, and that you yeah. you'd look at that and you go, man, like. That that, sh- that stuff doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, I remember that. So good. Cool, man. All right. Well, we've had a good uh, 90 minute chat, I think. It's been good catching up with you. Yeah, mate. Awesome. Thanks for having Thanks. me on. And it's been too long in between. I guess this time, everyone, you know, just doing a lot of reconnecting and a re, you know, talking to a lot of people that I haven't spoken to in probably a long time. So it's been really good to catch up and hopefully don't leave it as long to next time but probably see each other on pool deck pretty soon hopefully yeah for sure good luck uh good luck through this lockdown period and for for the rest of the prep and and we'll be catching up and uh might need to get on another podcast after you win an olympic medal in in tokyo next year absolutely mate absolutely all right thanks tommy awesome bobby thanks mate